Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. In December, we heard from Connecticut's U.S. Attorney Deidre Daly about hate and bias crimes increasing nationwide, especially against people in the Arab, Muslim, and Sikh communities. Authorities say it's likely higher given that some incidents go unreported. Now, how do police departments track hate and bias crimes? Coming up, a ProPublica journalist will join us to explain and tell us about its new project called Documenting Hate. State Representative William Tong will also be here to explain why state lawmakers are supporting his bill that would make Connecticut's hate crimes law the toughest in the nation. Do you think increasing penalties for hate crimes is needed? You can join the conversation this hour. The number 860-275-7266. You can email where we live at WMPR.org. As always, find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. But first, reaction to recent crimes in the U.S. fueled by hate. When immigrants receive visas to study or work in the U.S., one thing drives them. It's their ambition to work hard and succeed so they can support themselves and their families, whether they live here or abroad. So many keep their heads down, concentrating solely on meeting their goals. Eventually, their goals lead them to pursue citizenship in a place they grow to love, their new home, thousands of miles from where they were born. That's why the stories of Balbir Singh Sodhi after 9-11 and recently Srinivas Kochibotli are deeply disturbing to immigrants, no matter their ethnicity. These men were immigrants too, both from India and now both dead, gunned down by people who attack them because they're seen as foreigners. Today where we live, three Connecticut residents with Indian roots are joining us in studio. We wanted to hear their reaction to recent events still being investigated as hate crimes and also get their perspective as South Asians about what they're seeing in America today. In studio with me now are, are Tejas Bhatt, Pankaj Prakash, and Manisha Srivastav. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. Tejas, I'll start with you. You moved to America in 2000 from India. Tell us uh, what brought you here and what you experienced. Uh, glad to be back, Lucy. Um, I so I moved here. It's a very long story, but I but I essentially moved here um, as the last um, of my grandfather's offsprings with my with so with my parents. Um, everybody in, in my dad's side of the family had moved in the '70s, and and we were sort of straggling behind and, and moved in the '90s. And, um, and 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 I decided to come to law school in in the year 2000, and that's that's what caused me to move here. That's sort of the the historical fact. The, the reasoning behind why. I and many in my family wanted to come to America in, uh, and, and live here and build our careers and our lives here was the promise of what America was, what, what America had been known to the world as, which is the land of freedom, the, the land of opportunity, the melting pot of the world, the progressive nation that looked out for everybody else. And a lot of people in my country, um, people that I knew, looked toward America as a place to be free from the oppressive policies of our 
of our home, the economic regression and repression in our homes. Um, and so I came to America with these dreams in my head of, of uh, family members who had made it successfully, who were living um, middle class, upper middle class lives, who my cousins were going to Ivy League schools. And initially, I sort of experienced the same things. And then year after I moved here, 9-11 happened, and things changed completely. And so, you know, you mentioned um, the Sikh uh, owner, I think it was a gas station or motel, who was gunned down in the aftermath of 9-11. I experienced similar things. And when I read the story of um, Srinivas in Kansas, it sort of struck really close to home in Hartford. um, Shortly after 9-11, I was approached by an individual who seemed to be intoxicated and demanded to see my papers and my passport and asked if I was a citizen. Um, I initially sort of shrugged it off thinking, this is a joke. I was also 21 and perhaps rather foolhardy. Um, But he did proceed to actually physically assault me and uh, put his arm around my neck and uh, demanded to see my papers. Um, And Luckily, the owners of the bar and the bartender where I was were very helpful. I had friends with me who were white Americans who were extremely helpful and managed in driving off this fellow. But um, unlike Srinivas and his friend, I decided to leave um, in fear that this man might return, uh, which is, I think, exactly what happened in Kansas. Unfortunately, the man did return um, with a gun and took a life and severely injured two others. So... Yeah. Can I ask, after that happened, you know, how did that change you know, daily uh, interactions, routine? Did you, did you chalk it up as an isolated thing? At the time, I think I chalked it up as an isolated thing. Um, but that wasn't the only incident in the aftermath of 9-11. There were a couple of others, again, in the Hartford area. And to me personally, I think it crystallized my worldview, which is um, – what I wanted to do with my career. I was in law school at the time, and I and I realized that if I came to America because of American ideals and beliefs, it the best way for me to represent those were, would be to try and uphold them for others like me who were viewed as different or other or not worthy enough by a, a majority, whatever majority you want to call it. And I think in part that's what dr- – drove me, as you know, in my day job, I'm a public defender. And I think that's in part what drove me to, to do what I am. So it did change my outlook in that sense. Um, it, it took a bit of the sheen off. Um, it took a bit of the magic off of this, this package of America. But it made me realize that there are things that are tremendous here still that are worth fighting for. Uh, I'll turn to Pankaj Prakash. You came to the United States around the same time Tejas did. This was in, in 2001. Tell us what brought you here. Yeah, so I came here as a student uh, at UConn. Um, I was pursuing my master's degree, and um, I started here um, doing that, and then uh, actually met my wife, uh, who was at UConn as well, uh, doing her PhD. Uh, we got married and decided to stay in Connecticut and raise a family here. So uh, as Tejas was talking, uh, I, I was listening very carefully, and in 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 a lot of ways, uh, my journey has been very similar to as well, like aspiring for that American dream. And in a lot of ways, it has been that, um, you know, that American immigrant journey, which is mostly been very, very positive. Um, But, uh, and and unfortunately enough, I have never uh, experienced something as um, in in the face as, uh, you know, Tejas has, and in these incidents, which are are, uh, very abhorrent. Uh, But uh, I, I have 
to the extent that I have, like I have experienced very benign ignorance uh, around the state. And, uh, you know, things like, you know, I have never seen uh, any Indian at a Bruce Springsteen concert. That's the extent of... Uh, uh, ignorance I faced, thankfully. So I, I'm very, I'm, I'm, I'm very thankful that I didn't have any experience like. But I know of people uh, like Tejas, like who have experienced this firsthand, and that's very unfortunate because um, Indian immigrants do come here, or any immigrants who come to this country came come with a, with an ideal of uh, a country which is welcoming, and anything which uh, kind of uh, goes against that. Uh, is is sad. So, uh, but I, I do want to say about uh, Indians in general how they, how how they how they see America and these incidents happening. Because I have met met a lot of uh, you know a lot of my friends are Indians, and um, Indian Americans who who have been in this country for a very long time. Now, if you want to understand their reactions to this, they're very similar to my own um, in a lot of ways, and that's why I, I want to like talk about that a little bit. Uh, yeah, and we'll want to, we want to hear more yeah. about you know your response and your reaction to recent hate crimes. But I wanted to bring Manisha into the conversation to, to have our listeners learn a little bit about you, Manisha. Um, unlike Tejas and Punkage, you've been in this country since you were a young child. So tell us about your journey here. Uh, sure. Um, so yes, unlike uh, Tejas and Punkage here, I actually didn't have a choice. I was brought here at the age of three. Um, I was born in Australia before that, um, but my parents are from India. And um, I grew up in Maryland for a little while, mostly New Jersey, and I've been in Connecticut now for about 10 years. So in a sense, America is really the only home that I have ever known. Um, we invited you into the studio to talk about your response uh, to recent hate crimes. Uh, Tejas had mentioned uh, the, the, the gentleman, uh, Srinivas uh, Kuchi Butla, who died in Kansas, um, the uh, perpetrator uh, shot him and a friend in a bar. And I wanted to find out when that ha that story happened, what was your reaction? You know, we, you know, I did uh, the experiences after 9-11. You know, there was a rise at that time as well. And, um, and like almost, you know, statements that were made against Indians, Muslims, of course. And, you know, I'm hoping these are isolated incidents. But the Actually, this past weekend, my parents live in a Midwestern town, um, a city, small city, and there was an incident there as well. Uh, you know, so small again, small. You know, a statement made to an elderly woman in a grocery store. So, I, you know, unfortunately, I'm, I'm I'm fearful now. Like, I am wondering if it was if it's this is a safe place to raise my children anymore. Like, do we have to consider? I mean, you know, we're gonna have to see how this plays out. Um, I'm hopeful after after 9/11. Uh, I know, like, you know, as I was saying, friends did experience. Um, statements made, but it did die down. So I'm hopeful maybe post-Trump it'll also it'll get to be able to unite, reach a better place. But, I, you know, I don't know. We'll have to see. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Uh, three Connecticut residents are in studio with me today uh, to get their response to uh, hate crimes in the news. Um, it appears, and we know through FBI data, that hate crimes and bias incidents are increasing um, nationwide, not just against Muslims and uh, South Asians, but also uh, many uh, incidents of people of calling and uh, reporting that there are bombs in Jewish community centers. And we wanted to talk about um, the, this recent news and what Connecticut residents are feeling. You can join the conversation, too, 860-275-7266. You know, what's interesting about um, talking about two South Asians about uh, hate crimes 
again, because we saw what happened after 9-11, where people were targeted because the perpetrator thought that this person was Muslim and we don't want you in this country. Um, We know, though, that racism uh, is broad. It generalizes. It doesn't matter where someone is from. If If someone really wants to pursue a crime against someone based on how they look or what religion uh, they they follow, they're going to do it regardless. And so I'm curious, um, with this latest uh, rash of, of hate crimes against South Asians, do you think that there needs to be a different response from the South Asian community? I'll start with you, Tejas. I definitely think there needs to be a different response. You know, one of the things that I learned um, when I when I started living here and, and working here and becoming enmeshed in, in, in American culture is this idea that um, Indians are what, what's called a model minority. And for those who don't know, I, I suppose the term it refers somewhat derogatorily to Indians who are known to be good workers, keep their heads down, stay out of trouble, and don't do anything to upset um, the status quo. And and therefore, we're viewed as the, the model minority, which is a very insulting term because it compares us to other minorities who may not be so quote-unquote model. Um, but I think it highlights two things. There was a um, an article in The uh, Atlantic recently um, by a, a guy named Amitav Kumar, and I and I, I thought it was absolutely a wonderful read about Indians coming to, to terms with the reality that we are a minority in this country. And he uses this phrase that I have just stolen now, um, and I will use it repeatedly, is that we are not white, not quite. And I think it encapsulates so perfectly what I think our reaction as an Indian American community should be to everything that we are seeing. I think we need to stop wanting, and I think this is not everybody, again, hashtag not all Indians, but I think a lot of us do feel like the best way to assimilate into this country is to emulate um, the the population that we see as in charge and being the most successful and that to date has been the Caucasian population. So we want to be just like them, stay out of trouble, get middle class jobs. And I think that's in turn allowed us to turn a blind eye to the fact that to a lot of people who are willing to commit these kinds of hate crimes, there is no distinction between us and Muslims and African Americans and Latinos, and they will treat us the same. And and we've seen um, by the increase in crimes against people of of uh, of color of South Asian origin, and and I do think it's a weird situation to be in when you say oh, look, racists are so stupid, they shot an Indian man thinking he's Muslim, right? We're not Muslim. Don't shoot us. That's a silly, that's just a bizarre position to take. Don't shoot anybody based on their race. Don't shoot anybody based on their color. And I think we have to realize that given this model minority status, given the fact that we have achieved as an ethnic group moderate long-term success in this country, we have the ability to speak up for people who don't. And I think the reaction to this should be from the Indian American community to join forces with other immigrants, other minorities, and say, we are going to support you and you're going to support us and we're going to fight for everybody's rights as minorities and not discriminate. That's an important point, Chagis, because we're not seeing that today. Yeah, so uh, actually we are not. And there there are a few reasons for that, I think. And they just uh, touched on some of them. Uh, The the model minority is a big reason for that. And in that context, it is important to remember that there are two pieces of data, right, uh, which come from Census Bureau, which is uh, Indians are 
one of the hi- most highly educated ethnic or racial groups in this country. Uh, more than 70% of Indians have college degrees. The second piece of data is uh, that most of them are very well off. So they make $88,000 as a median income per household as compared to uh, uh, all American households, which is about 50K. So they live in this kind of a bubble, which Tejas was uh, alluding to, where uh, they they think of themselves as being uh, kind of a little bit... Um, Little, uh, a little bit segregated from um, these incidents happening around them. Now, uh, this mo- model minority, uh, quote-unquote positive stereotype, Indians have very, um, uh, very openly embraced. And um, they are proud of it to a certain extent, which they should be because it's, it's a very good immigrant story of a, of a successful immigrant. Now, with that embrace does come something which is not great, which is, uh, they, they, they have some complic- uh, complacency mm-hmm. around that. Now, when you have that complacency, what happens is uh, it's basically you think of these problems as somebody else's problems, some other people's problems. And that's what I think Tejas was hitting on. And I think a uh, lot, of, lot of Indians feel unsure about their role in all this because of that attitude of this being somebody else's problem. Now, uh, I have seen in recent uh, recent days, recent weeks, um, that people have become more politically active. Uh, they're expressing their opinion more openly in the Indian community. Uh, they want to do something more positive and be ahead of this trend, uh, although at the same time hoping that this is not a trend. So this, this is what I'm seeing in the Indian community right now, uh, which is kind of a cautious uh, optimism, but at the same time a little more... Uh, little more, uh, you know, inclination towards uh, political, uh, you know, uh, taking political views about this and having a stand on this. Manisha, I wanted to ask you, you know, in, personally, what do you think is uh, a response that people should have in communities, regardless if they're South Asian or not? How do we move forward from this? You know, I, you know, I think just building upon what Dejas and Pankaj said, I do think it's good that, you know, we're coming together as community and trying to educate folks about who we are and helping them understand our, us. But part of me also thinks that there I know there are people out there that even if they knew nothing about Indians, even if they, you know, who we are, what if, if they ran into us, they would never harass us. They just respect us. They respect our light, right to live in this country, work in this country. Um, so I don't know. Part of me thinks that this is about teaching our youth um, and for as a long-term solution for about tolerance, about acceptance, about you know learning to respect your fellow human beings. Um, yeah, it's and you said that most people respect the immigrant story, but there is also this rhetoric in this country now. I mean, we've heard it, we've seen it in the way these crimes um, have been reported uh, when perpetrators say, "Get out of my get out get out of my country" or "Go back to your country." You know, there's definitely a feeling that some people see in their communities, of, of there being rhetoric against immigrants. How do we get past that? I, I don't know. I mean, especially nowadays that there's these postings at, you know, universities. It's almost, I, I suppose they're trying to recruit, you know, saying that America, make America white again, and you know, this is a white country. And unfortunately, <laughs> you know, we stand out. I, I grew up here, and until somebody comes and actually tries to speak to me or get to know me, they won't know that I am a complete American. 
Um, so I'm, I don't know, I don't know the solution to how to, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I guess all these themes that everybody touched on that just mm-hmm. getting to know people hopefully and bridge those divides. Yeah, I, I was thinking, Lucy, like, uh, I think, uh, you know, Manisha mentioned uh, uh, the president before, and I would, I, I would put it this way, to be sure, every, every incident that happens in this country, and every, uh, you know, action that is take, taken by a aggrieved individual cannot be put on his doorstep. But to be sure, he can set a tone. Uh, that's where I come from. Uh, I think it's important that he sets a tone uh, uh, and has a leadership on this issue, which m- makes it clear to everybody that we do uh, you know, uh, respect the contributions of immigrants in this country as much as we do of the native-born citizens. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that's where I come from, uh, setting a tone uh, for his administration and taking a lead on this, and um, you know that all immigrants are welcome. That's an interesting point that you make because I know during uh, the campaign season, uh, pr- uh, Donald Trump, when he was a candidate, was receiving support from some portions of Indian Americans um, who supported him and voted for him. So it's interesting to hear you say, "Well, we need to hear uh, something from the president when these things happen uh, to con- to to say this is not right." Tejas. I agree. And uh, I think after um, the death uh, of Srinivas in Kansas, it took, well, the first reaction out of the, the White House was very tepid and sort of noncommittal and may even have disputed that it was based, uh, motivated by race. Uh, and eventually, I think four or five days later, the White House did issue a statement. And it, this is what I think I was, my my point earlier was, and this is the point that, that everybody, I think, at this um and this discussion has been making is we, although it is important for the president to set a tone, I don't think that we can rely on him to do that. And I think it's critical that we stand up for ourselves and for others. Um, I'm reminded of the sort of the famous quote, and I'll just, I'm sure I'll, I'll reference it and everybody knows, but, you know, first they came for the socialists and I did not speak up because I was not a socialist. And then they came and sort of goes on and on and on. And then they came for the Indians and there was no one left to speak up for me. Um, because we have buried our head, because we've been isolationist in, in a sense in, in this country um, in an effort to perhaps say, if we keep our heads down, they won't bother us. It's not happening. It's not working. There are people who are dead. And no matter how much Srinivas and his friend and the grandfather in in Alabama, I think it was last year, who was just taking a walk and was slammed down by a police officer uh, onto the pavement, as much as they tried to keep their heads down and not do anything, they are... They had severe, you know, injuries, and and one of them died. So I think we need to, as a community, take responsibility for the fact that we are an immigrant community. We bring something to America, and we must stand up and push back against all sorts of prejudice, no, no matter whether it's directed at us or somebody else with a different skin color. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpavanchel. Again, we're talking about the increase in hate crimes. Again, from 20, 2004 to 2015, the FBI says that hate crimes against uh, Muslims uh, and, and Arab Americans, also uh, South Asians, jumped 67 percent. And we are pegging this show to recent events in Kansas, as Tejas mentioned, also someone in Washington state, uh, both South Asians that were targeted uh, because of how they look and um, where people think they're from. And we wanted to get response from Kansas. Uh, 
Connecticut um, residents who are South Asian. And you know, we mentioned you mentioned Tejas that we can't rely on uh, the president setting a tone. It's up to local communities. We hear that sentiment often on a variety of issues. So since uh, you know since the election, what are we seeing? What are you seeing here in Connecticut that gives you hope, or you would like to see more of in local communities? So so. Um what I have seen, and I'm involved with this in my town, um, and I've seen it in others. Um, I think Bloomfield has done this. There are cities across the country that have uh, passed resolutions. And I think one of the things that I've seen is in, in, in making this effort in my town, we have a group of citizens of all ages, races, who've come together sharing this common goal of tolerance and inclusiveness and diversity in America. And... Um, what we have done is ask the town to pass a resolution affirming that. Um, I think a lot of other towns are doing it. There's been a lot of political discourse and conversation among the community. I think, um, uh, as uh, Pankaj was saying, that you've seen more on Facebook. And Manisha, I think you were saying, saying that as well. People are getting more vocally active and more reactive. I think it's time to start at local levels for all of us to take an interest in our towns, in our neighbors, and ensure that the little community that we have some modicum of control over um, affirms that it is a d diverse, inclusive, and tolerant community. And by being out there, by being part of the community, not only can we actively participate, but we can also demonstrate to people who may have hidden concerns that we are just people like everybody else. And we're here because of what America represents and what America, the opportunities that America has for us and our families. I wanted to take a, a quick call. Azishan is calling from Vernon. Azishan, we just have a couple of minutes. What's your uh, comment or question? Uh, my comment was that uh, I moved to the United States uh, in 2005 from India. I was born in the U.S., but I grew up in India, came back here. And uh, my wife actually got this comment about a month ago. Someone cut her off on the road, rolled their window down, uh, flipped her off, and said, go back to your country. What does that mean now? So. As an example, one of the participants, she came in from Australia, and uh, she was born there. When when she's, if, let's say she's been told, go back to your country, is she supposed to go back to Australia, or is she supposed to go back to India, where she's never lived, or where she's never considered home? Same as my wife, she grew up uh, around the Middle East, and she never grew up in India. So wh what happens, what does that mean, go back to your country, where the only country that you've wholeheartedly known is the United States? This is the only country that is home for you. I think we fight back. <laughs> you know, I think I say, this is my home. How about you go back home from where you're from? <laughs> and that would be the initial reaction, right, when yeah. we get offended. But the key is, is education. I think so. I think long term, you know, that has to be. You know, my kids are in a magnet school, and I am so happy about that, about the diversity that they experience and the cultures that are brought in. And, you know, I wish that for all students across the country. Um, yeah, root, root, root of all this is actually ignorance, right? I think we have known on a lot of issues uh, from gay marriage to a wide variety of issues that as you know people, you consider somebody different than you. As you get to know them, your opinions change about them. And I think it's more about it's all of our responsibility to know other kinds of people who are around us and just not know them superficially but actually get to know them. So I think a lot of this comes stems from the ignorance. And I think one of the uh, you know, antidotes to ignorance is actually knowing people and making a constructive effort to know them well. Now, w one thing I wanted to add on, a, on a, actually on a 
positive note because I think I think a lot of the discussion was very serious, obviously, as it should have been. Uh, I, I want to actually bring up uh, Ian Grillard, who was uh, this Kansas man, a true American hero, who actually literally took a bullet for a stranger, uh, trying to save his life, and actually did, he did save one life. To, to quote him, you know, I think there is life is too short for hate and anger, and I, I want to I want to salute those people like who actually take a stand on this, like in Ian Grillard, who are as I said like true American heroes, and that's the country we want to live in. And you're talking about um, a gentleman at the same bar where Srinivas was um, that uh, tried to intervene when uh, that perpetrator uh, shot um, him and his friend. I want to take one more quick call before we head to break. Pat's calling from Bloomfield. Pat, you're on the show. Hi, I'm. Disturbing. I, I'm very sorry that all of this is happening to our uh, Indian um, Americans. But the president did make a statement. Um, I don't think he's going to make another one. His beginning statement was to make America great again. And many people in this country understood that that was code for make America white again. And unfortunately, you're not white. And it's very sad that you got caught up in the net that African-Americans, Latinos have been living in all their lives. Yeah, Pat, good point. And there's a lot of work that still needs to be done in this country. But we do need to head to break. So I want to thank uh, our guests in studio today, uh, Tejas Bot, Pankaj Prakash, and Manisha Srivasta. Thank you so much for having this very candid conversation. Thank, thank you. Very happy to be here. Thanks for having us. Pleasure. Discussion. Now, coming up, we're going to hear from State Representative William Tong. He's proposed a bill to actually uh, strengthen the hate crime law in Connecticut. Will it make a difference? You can join the conversation. We live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Last week, Connecticut lawmakers announced legislation to strengthen state hate crime laws. Now, in 2015, FBI stats show there were 95 hate-related incidents reported to Connecticut law enforcement agencies. And again, that was in 2015. Sixty-six percent of them were based on race, ethnicity, or ancestry of the victim. The Anti-Defamation League of Connecticut says incidents of bias directed against Jewish institutions have also risen sharply during 2016. And they continue into the new year. Now, do you think Connecticut's hate crimes law needs strengthened? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, I want to welcome into the studio now State Representative William Tong. He represents Stanford, Darien, also co-chair of the Judiciary Committee in the General Assembly. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Tell us about this bill that you've proposed. It was announced last week um, at a press conference related to um, hate crimes and our law in Connecticut. Tell us uh, what prompted you. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, we're seeing a spike in hate crimes here in Connecticut as we are across the country. Um, after the election, um, we've seen swastikas painted on doors in um, Danbury, uh, racial epithets spray painted on garage doors in Stamford, as you referenced. Um, uh, threats on Jewish community centers uh, in West Hartford and Woodbridge and shots fired on a mosque in Meriden. So this reflects, I think, a spike of over 20 percent year over year nationally in hate crimes. Uh, it's clear that 
that there's a surge um, in this kind of bias and bigoted uh, hate being acted out uh, by individuals and groups of people, and we think uh, we think it's important to act. What is the hate crime law on the books now in Connecticut? How will your bill change that if approved? We have some pretty strong hate crimes laws already on our books, but there are some holes. Uh, one of them, for example, is that uh, first degree, uh, a first-degree bias crime or a hate crime and a second-degree hate crime are punishable as felonies. And those focus on individuals. Um, but we found that there's a gap there that if you uh, commit a hate crime, desecrate, uh, for example, a synagogue by uh, spray painting on it or um, focusing on a group and not a specific individual, that that is only a class A misdemeanor uh, that is punishable only up to um, a year in jail. So we wanted to go beyond that and create um, a felony structure where you could spend more time up to five years, in some cases up to 10 years in jail for that kind of bias crime. Representative Tom, how do you respond to critics who say that uh, people who are, are perpetrating these or committing these crimes, you know, they're not going to be thinking about the, the penalty. They're just going to be doing it because of, for whatever reason, maybe they have a mental illness. Yeah, I think that w we need to um, be flexible. And, and one of the parts of our proposal is in addition to jail time to have a mechanism for community service or uh, restorative justice. You know, in the case of the mosque in Meriden, actually the shooter sat down with the members of the mosque and um, they talked with him and, and in a way worked through the issues that led to the, to the bias crime. Um, and so this law will be flexible. At the same time, I think it's, it's clear that um, criminal law still has an important deterrent effect, a signaling effect, and, and it reflects our condemnation of this type of crime. Hate crimes are different, um, Lucy. I think we all understand that. They um, have attributes much more like terrorism. They're designed to incite fear, um, panic uh, by groups of people, not just individuals. They usually lead to violence um, and, and um, are intended to provoke a violent response in many ways. And they're intensely personal. You're attacking somebody for something they can't do anything about, uh, usually their identity or gender or sexual orientation or gender expression. So um, these crimes by their nature are in a way, because they're more personal, they're morally more wrong. And, and because of that, um, the criminal law needs to say in our state, we punish these crimes more severely because they are more hurtful to society at large. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. State Representative William Tong is in studio. He's proposing a bill that was announced last week to strengthen the hate crimes law in Connecticut. We're talking about this uh, today in the context of uh, you know, federal data that shows that hate crimes, bias crimes, have been increasing in this country. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. I wanted to take a quick call. Uh, Jeff's calling from Simsbury. Jeff, you're on the show. How are you? Thanks, Michael. Um, I just wanted to uh, say that I, I am in favor of uh, hate crime legislation. I think it's a very correct law. Um, but I'm skeptical of... I, I want to say reactionary uh, laws, laws passed during a crisis or in the immediate aftermath, that uh, because we already have uh, in America some of the stiffest penalties in the world, you know, uh, for any kind of crime, hate crimes included. And I wouldn't want to see, you know, more people put in prison in a 
prison that's already prison system that's already the largest in the world. Uh, and our penalties are already quite strict, uh, stricter than any uh, other wealthy OECD country. So. Well, Jeff, thank you for your call. Would you want to, want to respond, Representative Tom? Yeah, I think that's an important point. Uh, as a state, um, after I leave here, we're going to have a public hearing about um, uh, Second Chance Society proposal and bail reform and uh, moving away from a system of mass incarceration uh, in this country and in part here in Connecticut. So I'm very sensitive to the idea that we shouldn't be throwing more people in jail, um, that isn't always the best solution and, and uh, long term for this country has come at a great cost. Um, there's a tension and that's why, as I said earlier, this proposal includes restorative justice and community service and other um, non-incarceration you know, type penalties. But um, at the same time, I'll say this, we have already some of the strongest hate crimes uh, laws on the books. So it's not something new. The other thing to keep in mind about hate crimes laws in this country is they're balanced by the strongest free speech constitutional rights in the world. So we have a different tradition even than some of our sister um, uh, liberal democracies uh, like Great Britain or Canada. We have a tradition ensconced in the First Amendment that is different than any other and that protects speech to a degree that other countries do not. So while um, there may be some concern about the criminalization of speech, and I am mindful of those concerns, we also have a, a constitutional bedrock protection that protects most forms of speech, particularly political speech, and it goes a long way to doing that. In the interest of time, we're getting another call from Bridgeport. Callie, uh, we're, we're short on time, so I'm going to read her question to you, Representative Tong. She wants to know uh, how this bill will affect youth in terms of um, increasing felony charges. So again, I think when we're talking about a young person, we're going to have this debate today in the legislature about maybe a different system for young offenders than we have now and not pushing 18-year-olds uh, immediately into adult court because in many ways 18 and 19-year-olds are still children um, and not mature. So this law generally does not include mandatory minimum sentences, which we think generally is the wrong way to go. But it provides a menu of options for the judge to provide for a sentence that may include community service. The one thing I'll say, though, is the deterrent effect of criminal law, the condemnation that criminal law um, can exact upon a particular type of crime, the signaling function, and the ability to establish social norms, social norms through criminal law, that has, I think, its greatest effect on young people, right? And saying, this is wrong, you'll go to jail if you do it, don't do it. Before we go, again, Representative Tong was on the show today to talk about a new bill before the General Assembly to strengthen Connecticut's hate crime law. You know, I'm curious, Representative Tong, how do you think police departments are doing in, in um, you know, going prosecuting and working towards prosecution of of hate crimes but also tracking that data to to see you know how big of a problem it really is i think um that police departments are very focused on this i'm working with the connecticut police chiefs association on a variety of issues including strengthening our our state's uh, gun safety laws um they're very focused on these are very difficult issues for them often because it includes um cultural sensitivities and immigrant populations. Um, as you know, I'm a Asian American and, and it can be hard for a police officer to step into a community where there are language issues and barriers. Um, 
that being said, I think that we need to help them collect data um, and to track this information so that we can get them the help that they need. I know they want this data, but it can be challenging on a municipality by municipality basis to collect it. State Representative William Tong represents Stanford and Darien, also co-chair of the Judiciary Committee. Uh, thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you, Lucy. Now, coming up, a ProPublica journalist is going to join us to explain why the news organization has launched the project Documenting Hate. That's after the break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Coming up tomorrow, all-day coverage of Judge Neil Gorsuch's confirmation hearing. He's the president's nominee to the U.S. Supreme Court. NPR News will bring us special coverage beginning Tuesday at 9 a.m. here on WNPR. Now, this hour, we've been talking about hate crimes in the U.S. Reporting on these crimes can vary. We wanted to find out more about a new initiative from ProPublica, rather, called Documenting Hate. Joining us by phone, Ken Schwanke, journalist and developer at ProPublica. Ken, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Tell us about documenting hate. Why launch this project now? Sure. Uh, you know, after the election, uh, we, just as uh, much as everybody else, have been hearing stories and uh, data about rising incidents of hate. And when we probed it a little bit, what we found uh, and wrote about was that the uh, FBI's unifying, uh, uniform crime reporting was just not adequate for a number of reasons. Um, and we thought that we had just come off of a project called Election Land, where we had uh, sort of crowdsourced and filtered and pushed out information and tips to hundreds of journalists across the U.S. on voting problems. And we wondered if we could apply the same uh, rigor and process to uh, incidents of hate. Uh, Ken, you said the FBI data was inadequate. Why is that? So uh, the FBI, you know, uh, cities and uh, local police departments are required to report uh, incidents of hate crimes up to the federal government. But there is uh, no punishment uh, for most states in, in not doing so. And a number of states and uh, local police departments just don't do it. Uh, the Associated Press last year found that there were uh, something on the order of 2,700 police departments in the U.S. that simply had not reported a hate crime up to the FBI in the past six years. Uh, and further, uh, people tend to not want to uh, report these incidents to the police. So the, uh, the federal government also has the National Crime Victimization Survey, and they estimate that there could be upwards of 200,000 hate crimes every year. I guess we should maybe back up a little and explain what exactly is a hate crime, because people often get confused or may not understand if something happens to them, it falls under this category. Right. So uh, hate crime is sort of any crime, right, in any state that, that you might be in that uh, the police and the prosecutors believe was motivated uh, by hatred, which seems like sort of an obvious definition, uh, and also leaves it open to interpretation in a lot of ways. So uh, even if you report a crime up to uh, the police department, whether they classify that as a hate crime is sort of uh, up to them and can be a little, uh, a little fuzzy. Now, you are a journalist and developer at ProPublica, uh, documenting hate uh, just launched. Tell us how it works and what kind of response are you getting? Yeah, so uh, how it works is uh, we've created a form uh, that we've distributed out to a number of partner news organizations. And uh, we also gather data in from the Southern Poverty Law Center and soon to be a couple of other uh, civil rights organizations. And uh, we ask people to tell us their stories of uh, hate incidents and bias incidents, not necessarily hate crimes. Um, and 
uh, those all get mashed into a centralized database that reporters can comb through uh, and look through information relating to their beats and their uh, local specific interests. And in doing so, uh, they can sort of uh, classify things and clean up the data and hopefully come up with a, a, a wider picture of what's going on. So in a way, confirming whether this is indeed a hate crime or what, how to see to see how police and authorities are, are handling this incident if it's reported? Right, exactly. And for a number of reporters using it as sort of a tip line uh, to get stories of uh, hate and uh, you know, uh, property damage and spray painting and all of these things that, that could be happening in, in uh, these areas. How many submissions? Uh, at this point, we're up to about 2,200. Uh, we started in January as when we started collecting data on our own. Um, we also get data from the Southern Poverty Law Center, which has collected uh, at least 1,200 incidents uh, on their own. How, what, can you talk about the trends that you're seeing so far with the data that's being collected? Yeah. Um, you know, Univision uh, is a partner of ours, and they did a story where they found that uh, one in every four uh, Spanish language reports uh, of an incident included some variation of the phrase, go back to your country. Um, Huffington Post did another one where they expanded out past the Spanish language submissions that we've gotten, and uh, they found uh, something on the order of 97 incidents of that phrase. Um, further, we found, as uh, ProPublica found, about uh, 330 anti-Semitic incidents between uh, November and February of this year. Um, and a lot of that was property damage, a lot of swastikas, um, and things like that. So this database that you're compiling, who has access to it besides the journalists that are partnering with ProPublica? Um, right now, it's largely journalists. Uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center uh, also has access to the data. Um, we protect people's uh, personally identifying information. Uh, they're encrypted in the database, and they're only accessible to the organization that uh, generated the, the lead, so to speak. So the Huffington Post can only see uh, submissions from the Huffington Post uh, as far as it comes to contact details and stuff like that. And why not law enforcement? Uh, you know, as, as we pointed out earlier, uh, the Bureau of Justice Statistics says that a number of people don't um, report to law enforcement uh, for, you know, I would imagine a number of reasons. And as journalists, we're not sort of used to publishing or partnering with uh, law enforcement in this way. And so we thought it was, uh, we made a decision early on to uh, not include law enforcement in that. You're talking to us, uh, we're based in Connecticut, and we were report. We were talking about reports of, of hate crimes, bias crimes um, increasing. Tell us again how big of an, an issue is it when you look at the federal data, which you have said you know can be seen as inadequate. Not all police departments report to them. Uh, sorry, could you repeat the question? We're talking about your project in the context of you know hearing that hate crimes are increasing. We're basing that on FBI data that's showing an increase. But you're saying that at the same time, it's not exactly adequate because police departments aren't reporting to, not all police departments are reporting these crimes to the FBI. Right. So uh, what you can do, right, is check areas that do report very well. So, for example, New York City and New York State uh, do a very good job of reporting hate crimes. And so uh, you can measure increases, you know, based off of a handful of areas that uh, do keep a good track of hate reporting. And what do you say to critics who think that this is overinflating the problem of, of hate and bias uh, incidents? Well, we're taking sort of a, a deep tracking look at this. You know, everything that we report is real and happened. Uh, hate crimes tend to be undercovered uh, in the past. And we also made a decision early on that, you know, 
even if we could not find uh, an increase, that uh, increasing uh, solid reporting on this was a worthwhile endeavor. Ken Schwenke is a journalist and developer at ProPublica. For listeners who want to learn more, where can they go? We can go to documentinghate.com, uh, where you can uh, read more about this, get involved, or report an incident that has happened to you or a, a friend. And again, you're partnering with uh, media outlets from around the country. How many are collaborating today? We have, uh, I do not have the most up-to-date numbers, but we have something at least 24, uh, ranging from the Honolulu Civil Beat to the Georgia Voice to even uh, NPR's Code Switch. And you can again go, we'll have, we'll be tweeting out that information and putting it on our Facebook. But I want to thank Ken Schwanke, journalist and developer at ProPublica, a new initiative that ProPublica announced and launched in January to track hate and bias incidents around the country. Ken, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson. Our technical producer is Kyone Wolf. WMPR's executive producer is Katie Talarski. Check out WMPR.org slash where we live for more about the show. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening today. <laughs>